I'm Jamie Panetta, and this is the Decolonizing Medicine Podcast. I am a queer, non-binary trans person, and my ancestors are Tagalog and Chinoy. My healing arts practice is located at Fruit Camp in Baltimore, Maryland, and virtually. Announcements time. So as promised, Qigong for QT by PGM is coming back. These courses are live on Zoom. Registration for the next Dambana Dip, which is the QT by PGM class, will open in April and the course will start in May. I'll be announcing more details on my newsletter and upcoming podcast, so stay tuned for that. Captions are up for episode 21, Blood, Smoke, Fire, and Trees with Rebecca Nunziato. You can check that out on YouTube. Captions and scholarships for QT by PGM Qigong are supported by my Patreon. Please consider joining to boost our ecosystem of wellness. Members receive benefits such as bonus podcast episodes, educational modules on traditional medicine, and Qigong videos for self-study. In the most recent bonus episode, I talk about dry needling versus acupuncture and where decolonizing medicine fits into that. Since the last podcast episode, we have gained a few more newsletter subscribers and we are now past the 200 mark. I am so excited by this because it means I get to connect with folks directly outside of algorithm influence and ads. In my newsletters, you'll find updates on things like Qigong courses, events, info on traditional medicine, and of course, this podcast. You can sign up for my newsletter and Patreon at jamie-panetta-lac.com and I'll post a link to that in the show notes as well. Here are also a couple works in progress that I'd like to share. So I've had a few calls to do in-person Qigong classes, um, and I am currently scoping out spaces in Baltimore for that. As I've mentioned before, one of my clinical specialties is supporting folks through gender-affirming surgeries. I am currently designing a more structured program specifically for this. If you are in the Baltimore area, look out for more info on this in the future. Okay, so now it is the time in the show to introduce our next guest. And it's kind of weird for me because um, I know this person very intimately, uh, but for the sake of professionalism um, and keeping with tradition on the show, I'll read his bio for you. Kuan Sabino McCann is a white trans person of Irish and Italian descent, a big old homo and a teacher of Irish martial arts. He's a certified level four coach in the Doyle family style of Batarak, a traditional Irish martial art where folks use walking sticks, known as shillelaghs, for community defense. Ku teaches in-person classes through Be More Bata in DC and Baltimore, and soon online classes worldwide. His classes center trans and queer folks, but are open to all who fight at our side. Ku trains under Bernie Letty, the founder of the Fighting Harris Faction and the current chieftain of the Doyle family style. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Anyways, 
Good morning, Koo. Good morning, crush of my life. <laughs> Good morning, babe. Koo <laughs> is calling in from the basement of our house, and I am in my room on the second floor. Um, yeah. How are you today? The weather is great down here. Um, I'm so excited to be talking to you across the floors of our home slash with this lovely audience listening in. <laughs> okay, so the first question that I want to address is, who is this token white person? <laughs> Why are you on this show that I generally am centering QT by PGM on. Um, well, for those of you who don't know who Koo is, Koo is the audio engineer for the Decolonizing Medicine podcast. Um, yeah, the cat is like in the background screaming because he's very excited <laughs> to see me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> There's a third guest today. Let him out. <laughs> okay. Uh, so who is the audio engineer for this podcast. Um, so he has been involved in this project since the beginning and has been a huge supporter of it. And I wanted folks to have an opportunity to get to know who else is involved in this podcast. Um, and on top of that, Ku and I, because we live together and we're both on our own journeys around decolonizing ancestral medicine um we talk about it all the time like it's it's like regular mealtime in between mealtime conversations it is um pretty constant in our house it guides a lot of the decisions that we make as a family and as individuals um and we have we have a lot of really great conversations and i wanted to share some of that with folks so without further ado, let's start with the actual interview part. Um, so you are a teacher and a practitioner of Basarat. Did I say that right? Yeah. Close enough. As, much, as close as I can get as someone still learning Irish. <laughs> um, you can also call it Bata for short. Which just means stick. <laughs> yeah. And I want I want you to share a little bit about how you arrived at this relatively obscure martial art? Yes. Um, well, I was trying to map this for myself, and I would say that it's a combination of my Torresian nature, because I am stubborn and I will repeatedly research something, even if you tell me it doesn't exist. <laughs> um, a very clumsy promise to some gods that I made, and Facebook in no particular order. I, <laughs> um, I have always been curious to know if there, if what the martial arts of my lineage, uh, my lineages would be. I'm a person of Irish and Southern Italian descent. My families are mostly from Campana, Apulia, and Sicily in Italy. And for as long as I can remember, uh, as soon as I learned that martial arts were a thing, you know, my childlike hunger, I was like, what did we do? Like, what were my people up to? And time and time again, when I would research, go into the library, 
asking Jeeves back in the 90s. I Everything I would find came back with the past tense. And at the same time, I was starting to explore martial arts from other cultures. Um, and of the many things I could say to this, you know, I, I didn't stick around class for very long. Um, one, even before I had language for it, it was still weird for me with my zero analysis as a child to be going to Japanese and Chinese martial arts classes. And they're all taught by like a white dude named Steve um, and with very thick New Jersey accents, nothing against New Jersey. Um, but also- You know, I, they're I, totally gonna come for you now. New Jersey come for is me. gonna come for you. <laughs> I have a stick, you guys. <laughs> it's fine. I'm also from the tri-state. We have loving beef. <laughs> um, Anyway, if you're from New Jersey, you should know. And uh, But also, I had really debilitating pain as a kid, but I didn't understand that I had so much body pain. I've had a lot of joint issues my whole life. Now, as an adult, I know I have EDS. Um, but there, for many reasons, from um, I, was, I was uncomfortable in those spaces, especially the very toxic, macho, white bro culture that shows up in a lot of U.S. martial arts um, gyms. And so, you know, I would, I would try and research, I would try and dabble over the years, but nothing really stuck for me. And in my 20s, I made another big bout of trying to research as I was looking for self-defense classes that felt good. And then I would go to those classes and they did not feel good. And it wasn't until I really started doing drag that I opened up my own connection with my body, my own curiosity about what movement arts could be. And this set me up so that when, you know, the, it, we're in the pandemic, it's um, December 2020, and I found myself researching once again um, for an Irish or Italian martial arts that I could, I could learn from somebody on your urging. I was, I was trying to find classes to, I could do with my parents since we we're not in the same location, and it was that point of the pandemic and all. So I, I got my mom a pasta making class, something that we could be together and also connect with our culture in a different way. And I remember brainstorming with you, what could I do with my dad? You know, um, we've, we both have tried learning the Irish language. That's not something we're going to do together in a Zoom class. Uh, what could I do? And you had brought up, you know, like, what about a martial arts class? And I was like, ah, oh, I tried, I tried, I can't find anything. And it occurred to me, you know, I've never searched Facebook. Um, Facebook wasn't even around for half the time I'd been searching. And luckily, Irish boomers, much like American boomers, are just on Facebook making public posts. And I happened to find a post from my teacher, Bernie Letty, that was just like, if you want to learn Bethrat Irish stick fighting, DM me. So I did. And we have been working together pretty much every week since then. Um, and we are fully past the two-year mark now. I think that the pandemic was such an interesting catalyst for a lot of people becoming more in touch with their ancestral, um, I'm going to say ancestral inheritances because it's not just martial arts, right? Yeah. Um, and it's like, if that didn't happen, like your teacher wouldn't have taught online mm -hmm. and this art would not have made its way into um, the diaspora in the way that it has. And he's still teaching online as well mm -hmm. and has now, has since then 
um, trained up others who also teach that are online, who are all over the world. Mm -hmm. And you are also now qualified to teach online. Yes. Newly minted. (laughs) Yeah. It's a very, it's just like a very interesting thing to come out of the pandemic. Um, Oh, and also I, I want you to just like name for folks where your ancestors come from. Cause I don't think we did that yet at the I beginning. Did, I did a little bit of that. Oh, okay. within, um, within Ireland, my, my families are from Connacht and Ulster mostly. So um, just Clifton, just outside of Galway and um, within County Armagh, the McCanns, you know, if you're an Irish listener, you'll know that's just where all the McCanns come from. <laughs> and I also have some heritage on the Aran Islands. So tell us about your recent pilgrimage to Ireland. Um, You were in the Republic and you were also in Northern Ireland. So I am, I'm curious um, what happened there for you? Why did you go? I went in, I spent a huge chunk of January living and studying with my teacher, um, which was the, part of the pilgrimage. The the pilgrimage is, uh, I went for so many reasons. I haven't met my teacher in person yet. So as you said, I've been training on Zoom um, since we started working together. I have gotten to train in person. My dad kept training with me. So we've gotten to spar in person and do that learning, but it's um, very different when you get to really work with your teacher in person. And I am I have permission to teach. I'm currently a coach, but I'm on a journey to become an instructor, which in our, we have two tiers within our system, which is the Doyle family style of Betzadot. And as an instructor, I can teach the full form. I can help people become coaches and instructors themselves. I will be able to contribute to future adaptations of this form as it is a living system. Um, We know it will keep evolving with those of us living who practice it. We are, we keep the tradition and we also keep the living culture alive. And I also wanted permission to teach online. And I, I want the keys. I want the keys for my communities. I teach primarily to trans and queer folks. I like to say I, my classes center trans and queer people and those who fight by our side, anyone who fights by our side. And in order to get to that level, I knew I really needed that in-person time with my teacher. And also I'm in my own journey of understanding myself as an Irish person, as an Irish person in diaspora. I was able to go to the homeland with my parents when I was 16. It's a very different experience um, <laughs> than getting to go as an adult with the, the questions I have, the learning I've done. And as I'm also holding an art form that has been, I mean, so much of its history is within colonial resistance and part of my homeland is still colonially occupied. Um, as I'm working to move that understanding of colonization out of my mind and into my body. Like not just what is the concept of colonization, but like, what is, what does this feel like? What is this? How do I relate to it? Um, so for just so many reasons, it was, it was important to, to be there, to, to go back. And, and I would also say that I'm, you know, I'm, I'm pledged to, I'm bound to by my, my, the spirits and guides and ancestors that I work with. I, I would love you to. I would love for you to elaborate a little bit more about um, like decolonization and ancestral relation as a bodily practice. Yeah, I mean, as much as I can put it into words, because I'm definitely still learning uh, 
a feeling is actually that I should say I'm still in the process of feeling, you know, as, as I think a, a huge influence of white supremacy and whiteness is the movement of the sense of self into the head, into the intellect. Um, and for many years of my own life, I lived very dissociated from my body. I lived with crowded, crowded thoughts in my mind, hyper analyzing. And so when I encountered the world, whether I was processing colonization or anything, I was processing it in this, this hyper mental way, this very conceptual way. And so, and I, I can't talk about the process of feeling colonization without talking about the fact that so much of my work has been to bring my consciousness into my whole body. Like this isn't a meat suit, this is me. I am my toes. Um, they are just as brilliant as my brain organ, you know? Um, and even moving from that as like a fun sentence to say to like, oh no, material, like, like physically I, I am my toes. I can feel that difference has been years of <laughs> work and therapy and, um, my own process of talking to and my, you know, like the colonizer that lives in and through me and, I think that, <laughs> I think um, in, you know, um, there's the famous paper, decolonization is not a metaphor where we are often, when we are thinking about removing, we are talking about decolonizing, it is, a, it is a material shift that we're looking at. We're looking at land back, we're looking at um, uprooting settlement. And I think as part of that, there's also a rooting um, back into our bodies into connection and relationship with our ancestry and the, and the places and people we're from. And part of that work and part of the healing that I've gotten from my martial art is that connection to the body, the ability to feel, period, let alone the ability to stand in the lands that my ancestors have lived in and feel, I can feel the difference between the Republic and Northern Ireland. But I, I think so many people who have stood near a border that has been put through the place where your people live, that is that feeling. It is a, um, yeah, it is a, it is a very tangible sensation and disruption. But I, yeah, I, I hope this is, I hope what I'm saying is I've tried to put words to a thing that has been without words in my mind, but I'm, I'm curious if this resonates with you or is making sense. <laughs> yeah, I think that um, for me, some of this stuff like around like decolonization, decolonization, it gets very heady. It can live in a very academic space. Um, and, and there's nothing wrong with like having discourse and having yeah. intellectual like exploration of it. Those are all really important, but it we need to understand it and know it in our entire beings. Um, and we also need to recognize it when other people are engaging in it who are not necessarily like academic, you know, like there, there's like an elitism that can happen when it only lives in the intellectual space. Like that's not accessible and it erases the ways that other people have resisted and survived um, mm -hmm. that, that maybe look a little bit different. Mm -hmm. And, and also it's ableist. Like we don't all have the like mental capacity to explore something so deeply in an intellectual way. Like we need to be allowed to 
to engage in that in in all the ways that are accessible to us. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's so savory. Yes, and what you mean, like, yeah, the getting away from like the academic practice and into it's gonna be a it's messy, convoluted, complex thing um, that it we can't just think our way out of. <laughs> if so, so much of this work is rooted in in relationship, that is a space of feeling. You know, that's a space of of full sense. I should say, you know. Um, and yeah. it's going to look different in many different situations. I I think that what I have observed in being in some martial arts spaces, like I I'm a dabbler. I'm not like a very hardcore martial arts practitioner. Like I've I've taken, you know, um, I've learned some different martial arts here and there. Uh, the dog is throwing her bone around in the background. I'm sorry <laughs> if you all can hear that. Um, but I, I I think there's a lot of similarity between Filipino martial arts, Kali, um, and also known as Arnis or Screma. And what happened with um, Bata, where initially they existed as like a people's martial art, where in the Philippines, it's a lot of farmers with bolo knives um, who are resisting uh, colonizers resisting the Spanish, resisting Americans, the Japanese, the British. Um, and so they were like fighting with blades. Those blades got taken away. Then they started fighting with sticks. Those sticks get taken away. So they fight with their fists or whatever. Like it's like, it's not um, something that lives or was created in an academic space. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's something that was like more accessible to a lot of different people of different, you know, economic statuses, different occupations. Um, and it's adaptable and it's living. And I find it very interesting that that a lot of martial arts that were initially used to resist colonizers then, um, you know, live in like the diaspora or other places mm-hmm. where um, colonizers, colonizers then learn it. Yeah. Or like oppressive forces then learn it. So if you go to like a lot of Kali classes in the U.S. or a lot of martial arts classes in general, like a lot of cops train there. A lot of military folks are part of are part of those training spaces. Um, and it's kind of a it's kind of a mind fuck. Right. Literal occupation forces <laughs> training in an anti-colonial yeah. martial art. Like, <laughs> Yeah. And to be able to oh. like practice a martial art that has been used for resistance, uh, resistance and liberation and maintain that and have an analysis of like how it's showing up now, like currently and what it's being used for, I think is really important. Yes, absolutely. I, I mean, that's such a huge part of Bata's history where it probably was how we trained our swords. Then our swords got taken by some colonizers. So we had these sweet walking sticks as you were just describing that pathway with Kali. And it has been used in many an uprighting against the British and the landlord class, which is why it was pushed out of Ireland for many reasons, but um, a large part of that. And in the diaspora, it survived. And in the diaspora, it is being practiced by folks, by fascists. 
um, not just fascist, but it is, it is truly surreal to me, given the history of it, because of the complexity of who is drawn to and practicing these martial arts in the present, and also the complexity of this martial art staying alive in diaspora, which means it was kept alive by folks who became settler colonizers. I don't get a simple story about what it means to practice this art. So I don't get to practice a story of innocence where I'm like, don't worry guys, I found the white people who were actually good the whole time and they did this martial art. This, this is an art for liberation and it exists in an ecosystem where it has also been used for oppression. And as I get to make choices about, as, as a culture keeper, how I'm going to carry and teach this art, I get to move with the fullness of that because that's going to be the reality of the, the work, of the relational repair, of what's needed, of the challenges before it. And it lets it move honestly in the story that we are writing of what this art will be. And, um, and in the healing that's demanded in the practice of this art. If, if we're being called into feeling and into our bodies, then it is um, in the, the reality that we're in, in this context. And in this context where we choose joy, where we choose to practice an art and use it in a liberatory way, um, then we are, we are making that choice with full knowledge of how else it's being used, of what else is going on, Man, I feel like I'm ADHD in the sentence, so I hope this is making sense, but um, I'm hoping to express that this is also part of moving it out of the mind and out of a dissociated place and into a space where we can really look at what, how colonization is moving around us, how we are moving as agents of colonization. And then when we practice something that's been used to resist colonization, it's not going to be theoretical or like a nice to have. It can actually challenge us into the practice of what is being asked for now in colonial resistance. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, that totally makes sense. Yeah. Um, that, you know, you, you've already touched on some of this top, this next topic I want to ask you about. Um, yeah, let's go further with that. So why is Bata medicine for you and your community? I, in my personal experience, as I mentioned before, it has been, and not Bata alone, you know, I, in order to prepare for Bata, there was drag for me. There was, I practiced with Dr. Liu, um, Qigong for a year, which really opened up my sensation in my body. But Bata is what has helped me bring me home into this, into this body as this body. And connecting with movement, um, understanding that I can practice an art that is a self and community defense art that is very practical for my lived experience now. All of that has been really powerful, but what has felt the most defiant for me is, um, yeah, is, is, is the movement itself. And I think that that movement is a medicine for the trans and queer communities that I'm part of, um, not not just for white folks and folks in diaspora, although I do think there's medicine for us in being in alignment with our ancestors in understanding the, the many cultural gifts. I like to say, like, you can't stay in your lane if you don't know, you can't feel your lane. How can I, I, I see so much of the, the theft of my fellow white folks is something that I've certainly participated in as 
if you if you're stuck in your mind and you don't even know where your body is, where your spirit is, how we we feel when we're in alignment. Of course, you're bobbing around outside the lines, <laughs> hungry hippoing people shit. Yeah, if you don't even know, if you don't even if you don't know how to take up your own space, you're gonna accidentally or intentionally take up other people's spaces. That's it. That's it. And I take up again taking up one space. Um, although not not how it was intended by the folks, primarily like black feminists who, who put out this charge, but I, I think how it gets received by a lot of white people is, is a concept, but it's literal. Take up your space, be in your body, stay in your lane, be in your power, and then you won't be wielding a white supremacist power if you're doing that internal work. Um, and really challenging our fear. I see so many white queers are so scared of power. We talk about this, you and I, at home all the time. There's so much coding and guilt and anxiety around, um, again, around taking up space, around accessing power, as though any time we use it, we're going to be violent, we are going to be oppressive. And that, to me, is uh, that dissociation, that disconnect between understanding ourselves as ourselves, rooting into our body, using discernment, um, being in community and accountable to people, being in relationship versus being just sleeper cell agents of, of white supremacy. Of course, we need to do that work. I'm saying that as part of it, but power, our power isn't inherently <laughs> only, only violence. It says something if we think that, you know, it says something if we're scared to practice our own martial arts because we are scared of, of that overt violence. So we commit a, a covert violence by stealing people's other shit, by being in other people's spiritual practices. Um, you know, when we are running away or from or, or fearful of our power, we might think that we're disavowing the, the misuse of that power. We're disavowing oppression and privilege and violence. But when, when we're running away, when we're, avoiding that power we also can't subvert it we can't dismantle the white supremacist expressions of it and we are also not you know using the power that we do have in solidarity we're not in the verb of solidarity we're not turning this power back on itself actually fucking shit up <laughs> what you need to be and so you know like, again like i i really I, there is something about coming home into your body, about challenging these notions within yourself, not just conceptually, but, but physically, in your meat, in your feeling, you know, from your gut, um, translating that inward movement, that inner reconnection with how we are moving in the world, how we fight for each other. Um, I, I think it is a medicine because it is a deeply somatic healing practice you know, first and foremost. And, and I would also just say for trans, especially for my trans kid, but, you know, for some queer folks as well, there is so much escalating legal violence against our community. Um, I think it is also somatically healing to take up your space to feel your power in and of itself, whether or not you're ever planning to use this as a self-defense form in the street. Having a space where you can just be trans as fuck with some other folks, you can just be a person moving in your body with other folks is so important. That is part of that resistance, right? Like we defy erasure by taking up our own space, by taking up your body. Yeah. I, as you were talking, I was thinking about how important it is to know 
our own power um, because if you don't know your own power and you have power over someone, it's going to be really difficult to understand how to redistribute that power yes. and, and affect that imbalance. That's it. Um, and when you are, when you are sparring with someone, you very much understand like on, on like a physical somatic level, what power imbalance is. Yes. And you learn how to correct it very quickly <laughs> or you get your ass kicked. I mean, hopefully in a safe way, but you know what I mean? It, that it's like those kinds of practices where like you, yep. you can't just stay neutral because then nothing changes or you get fucked up. Mm-hmm. Or, and you can't just be in the concept of a movement or you don't land that movement, right? Like, I can, if you're, if you're softly, if, if I'm telling you that this punch comes from your hips and you keep putting it into your arms, you're never, you're never actually landing that punch, that punch. You're not using your full power, your full movement with it. Also, until, you injure yourself. And you injure yourself. Yes. If you're you not in touch with where your power comes from, um, just using, using the body as like a, a mirror. Yes. For... Ooh for like more conceptual, like intellectual stuff. Like mm-hmm. if you are not in relationship to how your body moves in space, um, it's hard to move in ways that don't injure yourself or don't injure other people. Mm. Cause that's the other thing too, is like, if you're sparring with someone and, and, and it's not like, like a conflict, like you're there to help each other grow and teach. If you're sparring with someone and you don't know where the end of your stick is, you can hurt yourself. You can hurt your partner mm-hmm. and nobody's better for it. Yes. Oh my God, babe. Yes. A hundred, like, yes. And you know, the other, with that too, um, and what I've experienced sparring with, you know, primarily straight cis white men, there is, if you're coming in this with the other extreme, so you're, you, you, you do know your force, you're coming in to hurt, you're missing opportunities where sparring is also play. Sparring is meant to be a learning exchange that we have. It's, right. I, it's part of the relationship with the martial art and with your fellow students. And, Can I just vent for a second? Yeah, vent. I, I think sparring is so invaluable and I fucking hate when I spar with like toxic masculine folks who go yeah. so aggressive where it becomes like, a competition where they have to prove something. I'm like, you're not helping anybody learn. You're not helping yourself grow. You just want to show off and like show Ugh. that you're power more powerful than me. And it's yes. If you are someone who has has done any kind of sparring, it's like a very distinct knowing when mm-hmm. someone is sparring with you to better both of you, and when someone is sparring with you because they're just being gross. Yes. Right. They are practicing dominion, you know? Yeah. Ugh. It's and a, it's a domination thing and it's not ugh. a mutual learning, mutual strengthening thing. There was one student that I worked with while I was with Bernie in Ireland. Um, and once he learned I was a coach, he started hitting me harder and harder. And he's not even, we have a, we're a five level system just in terms of your mastery. He's not even a level one yet. I'm a level four just for context. And he was hitting me harder and harder. Um, and I was, was mar- I was laughing because I'm like, I'm here to, to, to feel this movement, to make mistakes in front of my teacher so I can get correction. 
so I can feel what this is like is because me and this person have a different height setup than I've gotten to work with before because I don't know this per like I'm, I'm here to feel this movement and he's here to to challenge me like we're gonna rip our shirts and like chest bump so he can show that he's better than me and you know I I let myself be in my own learning space for most of that. And then at the very end, I fucking threw him um, <laughs> just to show him <laughs> that I could. But, you know, I was talking about it with my, my teacher later and he's like, yeah, you're going to find that, you know, like a lot of these guys are going to be challenging you. And I was like, not in my, like you were going to, with your students. You're like, not in my house. Not in my house. <laughs> not in my classes. We're not going to play with that. And again, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's about, <laughs> I mean, in my classes, we're going to work on, this full body sensation, this full body learning, because it is not about domination. It's about fuck these, you know, like we we will do some things in dialogue with these fuckwits. I will show you how to gracefully throw somebody's ass if you're able to. <laughs> but it's not about competition. And yeah. I think so much of, I think that it also gets coded into a lot of um, how at least martial arts gets translated in the very, you know, white bro dominant spaces that wind up here in the States. And I, and I think elsewhere too, but just, this is most of the context that I have. Well, that's, this is the complexity that we've been talking around this whole conversation where we're using a physical practice to explore these power dynamics yeah. and explore ancestral connection. Like why is, why is that person practicing this martial art versus why are you practicing this martial art? Very different, probably. I don't know who that is, but like you're learning skills to survive and thrive you're learning how to fight to live versus someone who's learning to fight to dominate other people when i was in the north with my teacher we did a seminar in lurgan and oh my god it was so it was a bunch of first timers it was such a sweet experience it's mostly like middle-aged or older white dudes and there was one person who was who's having a lot of time with the movements who i talked to after class and he had tears in his eyes and we were just talking about it and he was saying how he's an Irishman and he's like, it's so important for him to be in this practice, just to feel it, just to remember it, just to keep this culture alive. And I, again, like so, such a different experience than being there to dominate, you know, and, and such a different experience from, um, of, yeah, of just what martial arts can mean, what it means to just to open yourself to that. And I, I guess I wanted to shout him out too, to be like, <laughs> the the dissociated white bro seeking to dominate is avoiding <laughs> the possibility of the heartbreak that you will encounter when you open yourself to feeling why you need to dominate, what you have done in the name of domination, your ancestors have done, what you've lost, what is possible if you did differently. And I'm projecting a lot into this other dude's experience, but I, and if nothing else, and I know I was talking about the diaspora before, but it is a big part of um, my teacher's my, my teacher's mission and, and one that I share to, to help this martial art come home to Ireland in a really big way. And I just want to give a shout out to like, especially the trans and queer people in Ireland who know that we have a place in our history because we exist, even if the monks did a damn good job of trying to write out transness and queerness from our lore and our history. Um, and that this is a pathway for taking up that space as well. And for being in that relationship as well. And that when we're thinking about diaspora relationship, um, that this is, these are the connective points, right? It's the diaspora to land and also to people and people in the living culture. 
and right back, you know, from the homeland to the diaspora, there is a, there's a relationship. We need each other and we need each other as part of, um, I think this work of, of material relational decolonization, um, both thinking about Ireland as a, as a place that still has colonial occupation, but also Ireland in its responsibility to what our diaspora has done in the world as settler colonizers, as agents of colonization elsewhere. That is, that's an everybody in for that work. For folks who are not so familiar with the, um, with Irish history of colonization, could you just um, say how long Ireland has been under occupation? We've had over 800 years of British colonial occupation on the island. There have been other colonizers as well. You know, they, there's often a phrase of like, Ireland is free, the Republic's free. There's a, a, again, a big red line literally drawn on many of the roads on the northern part of the country that marks where there is still colonial rule um, for a, a solid chunk of northeastern Ireland. Thank you. I think that context is really important to um, put into perspective how long resistance has been happening and continues to, continues to happen in a lot of different ways. Yeah, um, and, mm. Oh yeah, go ahead. Well, and I was just going to shout out that like continues to happen and is something I see from, especially like queer kin on Instagram in the North of Ireland that, you know, also gets forgotten by folks in the Republic. Um, there is that border speaking of like dissociation and the separation of a body. If we think about a land, escape as a body, that is a, um, a pain point, even within the Irish context. And um, I'm not saying that that's an act alone is going to help with that, but I do think that is part of, I, I see a cultural revival happening in Ireland. All four of our fire festivals are, are now recognized as legal holidays. Like I, I see this movement towards reconnection and repair, um, and how can that not include that border? How can that not include this work of, of um, rebooting and uprooting that we're talking about? Yes. It better. Hell yeah. shout outs i would love for you to give us your community shout out for this episode yes i want to shout out past podcast carolyn of recovery for the revolution um carolyn does incredibly necessary work speaking of feeling into our bodies feeling into the the physical movement and um, intergenerational work of decolonization. Uh, Carolyn, Recovery for the Revolution is a project exploring how our use of substances in the present connects with colonization, with our ancestors, with our family histories, centered in Carolyn's own experience. And they are writing a book called Answering the Call of the Ancestors. Hell yeah. Um, hell yeah. 
approaching recovery um, as a liberatory practice. And you do not need to be sober to know that this book is medicine. This is a dialogue that our communities really need. Um, I know that I need it. Check them out on Instagram. They're at Recovery for the Revolution. There is an Indiegogo campaign running right now. If everyone who listened to this was able to give five or 10 bucks, we could make this book happen and it needs to happen. It's going to happen. And I hope that we can all be part of it. So I would definitely check them out. You could also catch um, Carolyn's episode was in season one of this podcast if you want to learn more about them, but just go shine some love on their Instagram, on that Indiegogo. And yeah. Thank you. Um, before we go, what wisdom would you like to share with folks in regards to ancestral medicine? Um, let's see. Okay, one, be so careful when you make deals with deities, when you make deals with spirits. <laughs> um, word your shit specifically. I am really grateful for... <laughs> Uh, I mean, it's I, not that weird. It's like, be careful what you wish for and be like, careful what don't you ask the for. wrong ones. <laughs> right? Like, I I am here through, it's something I'm not able to share that much about, but it makes me laugh all the time when I play back the words that I said. And I'm like, I see how we got here. But wow, you took that literal in a way that I did not expect. You know, um, so just... Um, so careful. Wait, are all your deities autistic? <laughs> no, <baby. laughs> are, are, are we all just like taking everything you say literally? I was like, yeah, that was, I did use the word warrior. Well, um, <laughs> you know, maybe, probably. Uh, but the other thing that has been a big discomfort that I guess I just want to acknowledge in case this resonates with folks here. Um, you have to use discernment with this. But if, you, if you're being called to share or teach a part of your culture that you are held in relationship and accountability with, you know, whether or not you were able to have elders that you, that you have community that you have like a natural call from your community to share, even if you don't feel like you are an expert yet, that there are ways that you can share and you can teach as a peer and that that is needed and that that is important. Just to personalize this, what I'm really saying is when I, I didn't mean to start teaching only two years into learning this martial art, I got pushed into this by my teacher. My whole plan was I'm going to learn this martial art for at least five years. I knew I wanted to teach one day, but I'm going to do this for five years. Then I'm going to go and get a degree as a physical therapy assistant so I can bring in more warm-ups and modifications to the form. And then I'm going to do this and this and this. And so when I passed my coach exam last year and my teacher was like, now you can teach, you should start teaching. I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But after I do all this stuff, and he's like, what? And I, I mean, I, you were with me, I think, when I had a whiplash moment, like a month after that, when I was like, I could just be teaching now, but I'm not, I'm not ready, I'm not ready. And what was really in my way is this notion that I had to be an expert, the expert, which brings us back into the mind, brings us back into these notions of power that were not about feeling that what I do have to share feeling the the answer to both the push from the elders, you know, like my teacher, um, and my community, my community requesting to learn. From as soon as I started learning, my community's been asking to learn with me. 
And so I say discernment because I think, especially for my fellow white folks, we are often out here <laughs> teaching before we are ready, teaching without a call. Um, so this is not referring to that. I'm saying when you really are walking in a practice that is held communally, when you are when you are in alignment with um, your culture keeping, to and and you are receiving a call to share that knowledge, to not resist it just from a notion of expertise. Resist it if you don't have accountability. You know, resist it if you're not being held in relationship, if you're not working with that medicine as you should be. But um, there is so much power in, in learning and sharing as a peer and to not discount that for yourself. Um, don't let, you know, these internalized notions of perfectionism stop us from sharing a medicine that's ready to be shared. I love that. Um, how do folks, how do folks get a hold of you? How do they find you? How do they connect? Yeah, well, right now my practice is called Be Marbata. We're in the process of changing that over to Strange Fox Fighting Arts. So searching for either of those phrases will find us. You can definitely find me on Instagram at Be Marbata. And we have a link tree, link tree slash Be Marbata. Come through. Online classes are going to start before the end of March. And I would love to meet you. Yay. And <laughs> you can also check the show notes. We will put links to Ku's info and to Carolyn's as well. Hell yeah. Oh, thanks everyone for listening and thanks, babe, for having me. <laughs> I love you. We're just blowing kisses at each other. Gross. <laughs> Gross. Get out of here. I'll see you upstairs. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Raming Salamat for listening to the Decolonizing Medicine podcast. Music is by Amber Ojeda, Head Candy, and Rocky Marciano. Big thanks to Ku for both guesting and editing this episode. Last but not least, thank you to all our listeners and supporters out there. Ingat! Ingat!